Mm-mm. Hello, and welcome to the 44th episode of Curiosityness. I am the host, Travis DeRose, and I have on Duncan Steele. Now, Duncan Steele is crazy awesome. We basically talk about um, his bookmarking time, but we talk about like how uh, weeks, days, weeks, months, and years are all the length they are, and you know how the calendar was established, and um, how kind of the modern calendar came to be and everything. So it's it's super duper fun. Um, but Duncan is a scientist, and we really get in down into some stuff. This was kind of the like lazy man's interview because I just set Duncan off with a question or two, and he just went and he just dives into all this stuff, and it's extremely interesting and fun. But he goes deep, so you got to stick with it and and focus in this a bit. But it's definitely worth it. It's there's a lot of really cool, fun information that he shares, um, and I really had a great time talking to him. And then also something that we dive into uh, probably about halfway, two thirds through is about the potential of some sort of big asteroid or comet coming and hitting the Earth and, you know, the small odds of that, but the uh, catastrophic effects that that would have. And, um, you know, he talks a lot about that, which is also extremely interesting. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to let Duncan do some talking. And here is episode 44. And boom, we're going. How's it going, Duncan? Yeah, well, good. Um, I'm here in Nelson, New Zealand, where it's a beautiful uh, sunny day. A few clouds around. Obviously, uh, we've had a real catastrophe here uh, with the terrorists attacking Christchurch and the whole of the country is somewhat muted, I would say, uh, today and will continue to be for some time. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I just heard about that. That's crazy. So can you feel like kind of a, a downer with everybody in around there and stuff? Sure. I, I, I mean, I guess in some ways... Obviously, it's uh, in terms of loss of life, it's not as uh, calamitous an event as 9-11 in the U.S. But, uh, you know, I've lived in the U.S. for some years and visited many, many times. I've got a lot of friends there. And I know that 9-11 was a, was a huge shock to the system, uh, as it were, in, in the U.S., in that um, it was an attack on U.S. soil. And uh, in many ways in New Zealand, people have felt that we are, I guess, immune to you know the terrible things which have been happening elsewhere in the world and all of a sudden it's been brought home that actually uh, we're not yeah. there is nowhere we're really safe and so i guess there's a, i'm just saying there's a kind of a national shock mm-hmm. about this thing and people saying uh, quite rightly that these uh, people um as far as i know entirely uh, muslim uh, came here and they should have been able to feel safe and uh and they weren't and uh uh, uh, there's a lot of soul searching going on and saying, what can we do better? How can we uh, just stop the sort of uh, inadequate idiots who are, uh, who perpetrate these sorts of things? And uh, as I say, it's a kind of national shock. It's really, um, uh, yeah, as I say, it's, it's something which was entirely unexpected, just not on the horizon. And when that sort of thing happens, uh, especially in a, a small country like New Zealand, remember, we've got less than 5 million population here in total. Mm-hmm. So it is only a population. You know, every single uh, road fatality is is headline news, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if a child goes missing somewhere in some town or city, you know, everybody gets to hear about it real quickly. And generally, thankfully, they're found really quickly. So it's, it's that sort of small community 
um, country in many different ways. People look after each other. And uh, this is uh, just a terrible event. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, that's a good um, good to put that into perspective. Or perspective. I didn't really think about the the size of New Zealand and how that would really you know change how this affected the whole country and everything. But yeah, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, let's try to shift off to something a little a little more interesting and and uh, and more fun to talk about, hopefully. But um, yeah, I found you through your. Um, your book, Marking Time, the uh, the epic quest to invent the perfect calendar, and something that, like you know, I've kind of thought about a lot, but never really knew much about, and is is you know, I I think it's it's very interesting how this all came to be and how it all sort of makes sense and there's different things, but um, yeah, I'd love to just talk about that. And you know, when we were emailing before this, you mentioned that we're recording on March fifteenth, which is the uh, Ides of March which is uh, something I had heard about too, but never even really knew about. Sure. Um, I'm pretty old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was brought up, if you can tell from my accent, I was brought up in England and uh, I had to study Latin. Um, okay. <laughs> I did five years of studying Latin. Part of that was studying the way in which the Romans uh, used dates, you know, which is very different to the way in which, um, in many, many ways, to the way in which we use dates. And one of them um, was... Uh, uh, the Ides. Each month has a, a, a day which is called the Ides. Uh, in March, May, July, and October, it's on the 15th. In the other months, it happens to be on the 13th um, for various historical reasons. Mm-hmm. But the Ides of March, in particular, are well known because the soothsayer says to Julius Caesar, beware the Ides of March. And sure enough, that is the date on which he was assassinated in 44 BC, um, the Ides of March. And so I kind of say this to people every year, beware the Ides of March. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, um, that event did occur on the Ides of March, um, the terrorist attack here in New Zealand. Um, I'm speaking to you, of course, on the other side of the dateline, which again is an interesting phenomenon in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's March the 16th here, it's March the 15th there for you in, in California. Um, so uh, whenever I traveled to the US, which I'm, I'm very happy to do with you know, most years, I guess, in fact, I'll be there in uh, five, six weeks' time for a conference on the East Coast. Um, every time I travel across the Pacific, I actually land before I took off. In that, um, it's a, it's maybe a fourteen or fifteen hour flight. But when I arrive at uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco, um, in fact, the time on my watch, when you couple it with the date, is earlier than when when I left. Right. And the reason for that is I've crossed the date line, which means that I've gone backwards one day. Uh, of course, the opposite happens when I return. If I come back the opposite, uh, I actually lose a day. Um, but that's kind of peculiarity, which you know we tend not to think about a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it, as it were, real. We we live in a calendar, and you said, well, you thought about it a great deal, which is great because a lot of us just don't. You know, it's just part of um, you know our lives. So you know, very few people think about, well, why do we have seven days in a week, or why are the months the the length they are. Um, why are the years numbered the way they are? Is there such thing as a perfect calendar? There's lots of people who come up with ideas or what they believe to be better calendars. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, in almost every case, um, one can find a fallacy in their system. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I could, I could certainly uh, suggest to you a, a better calendar in various ways, but it ain't going to happen, um, you know. You know, we're so reliant now on software and everything else that we saw what uh, fuss there was over the uh, 
2000, the year 2000 bug and so on, mm-hmm. and uh, actually change our dating system, I just can't see it happening. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons not to change from, say, seven-day weeks. People say, oh, why don't we have a five-day week or a 10-day week, make it decimal, and it's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of reasons uh, why not, you know, which are vested in, um, uh, in religious beliefs and so on. And people talk about, oh, well, why can't we have a scientifically more accurate calendar? And I know what they mean as a scientist. However, the calendar we, we use as the everyday, uh, every year standard globally, mm-hmm. uh, very often the Gregorian calendar, although that's technically uh, incorrect. Um, but that system is very much based on religion. And uh, for religious reasons, I don't think that is going to get changed anytime. Um, there has been lots and lots and lots of discussion about this sort of thing. Um, I love the I love being in libraries and just taking semi-random books. But we follow the Dewey Decimal System, you know, like mathematics and, and physics and so on. Started around about 500, so that's um, that's the kind of region which I'm looking on the Dewey Decimal System. As I go on down, I come to 520, 523 is things like astronomy and space science, which is my particular area. Mm-hmm. Then when I just come along another couple of meters on the shelf, I find there's there's books about calendars. There's navigation and then calendars. Now come if I look at the books about calendars, if the serials, that is the journals are there as well, I'll come against a thing which is called the Journal of Calendar Reform. No longer published because the people gave it up. In fact, the <laughs> person who was, who was funding the Journal of Calendar Reform in essence was George Eastman of the Eastman Kodak Company, who was very keen on calendar reform. And I'm talking here about, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, um, you know, there was a lot of activity in the middle of the 20th century in discussions about, should we have a new calendar? Can we make something more logical, scientific, and so on? And in the end, it was realized there are just too many, I shouldn't call them vested interests, but, you know, there's so, so many religious considerations in terms of uh, the way in which calendars are set up. And again, although very few people realize it, our calendar, this Gregorian calendar, which people you know say we use, um, it, that's all based on Easter. It's a religious calendar. It's based on Easter. It's all based around uh, regularizing the date of Easter. It happens to do that in a very much second-rate way, but um, it's all based around Easter. And, that, and, that, and that's the way it is. Like I said, I have no religious bent myself at all. Um, I'm, just, uh, I'm just reflecting the facts and, and history, if you like. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what? So it? How was it based around Easter? What was the uh, the motive for doing that, and why did they do that? Well, um, I mentioned Julius Caesar earlier on. Uh, if we go back to what was called the Julian calendar, it still is called the Julian calendar. It still is used by various uh, religions. So, for example, Eastern Orthodox religions still use Easter. So, oh. uh, Christmas Day on the Gregorian calendar, which we use, as I say, as the everyday standard around the world. December the 25th, we say, but their December the 25th, and therefore Christmas coincides actually with January the 7th on on the, the on our you know, everyday calendar. And that's why people from Eastern Orthodox religions will be celebrating uh, Christmas 11 days later. Um, so uh, that's a difference between the Julian calendar and the... Um, and the uh, Gregorian calendar. Sorry, I just said it's 11 days difference. It's actually 13 days difference. Um, Currently, it's 13 days different until the year 2100 when it will become 14 days different. Um, And that's because the year 2100 will not be a leap year. 
the reason it's not a leap year is that's one of the rules in the uh, definition of the uh, Gregorian calendar, that years are leap years if they're divisible by four, as long as they're not divisible by 100, uh, but are divisible by 400. So it means that's complicated, isn't it? Let me say it in a different way. Uh, on the Gregorian calendar, 1900 was not a leap year. The reason is it's divisible by 100, but not but not by 400. The year 2000, of course, recently, that was a leap year because, yes, it's divisible by 100, but it's also divisible by 400. Uh, 2100, 2200, 2300 will not be leap years on the Gregorian calendar. 2400 will be, looking a long way into the future. Yeah. The overall effect of that is it drops three leap years in a 400-year cycle. So instead of there being 100 leap years over a 400-year cycle, you've only got 97. So the fraction of a day, if you like, in terms of the average length of a year is 365 days plus 97 over 400, which is actually 0.2425. And that's a reasonable approximation for the real length of the year in terms of how long does it take the Earth to go around the sun. Uh, it happens to be a second rate, a second best approximation. Uh, a better approximation is actually what is used in happens in Iran and Afghanistan. It's called the Jalali calendar. Uh -huh. And although strictly they don't use, uh, they don't have advanced rules, it's actually based upon when does the uh, the March equinox occur. That has to be the day they call Nowruz or New Year. And that actually leads to a cycle which has eight leap, year, leap years over a 33-year cycle. So generally they have seven gaps of four years, makes 28, and then a gap of five years until the next leap year. So there's eight gaps over eight leap years over 33 year cycle. So the average there is 365 days plus eight over 33. Eight over 33 is 0.242424 reoccurring, and that happens to be a slightly better approximation to the to the real length of the year defined by how long it takes the Earth to go around the sun. Um, so that's why I say that actually the Gregorian rule for leap years and, and hence the calculation of Easter is actually second best. You can do a bit better. And there are lots of other technical reasons why using a 33-year cycle with eight years would be a little bit better. Leaving that aside, what the Catholic Church did decide back in the 16th century was this leap year scheme, whereby some are dropped. Um, and when they made that change, 10, needed, 10 days needed to be dropped. When eventually Britain and its colonies, which at that time, of course, uh, included um, uh, what we would now call the United States of America, uh, at that time, that was in 1751, 1752, when Britain joined, changed its calendar, that was 11 days needed to be dropped. And that was because of um, year 1700 uh, not being a leap year uh, on the Gregorian calendar, but was on the Julian calendar, which Britain and the Americas were still using at that time. And um, since then, the years 1800 and then 1900 not being leap years have led to another two days difference. And that now, instead of being 10 and 11, well, there's 13 days difference between the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar. So there's a time slip between those. The Gregorian calendar is, you could say, slightly more accurate. But as I said, you could do better still. But I'm not suggesting you should do that. Right. <laughs> Just complicated. But that's that's the reality. Um, so um, why date, date of Easter? Well, Easter is a very complicated thing. Um, you know, the mnemonic for Easter is that it's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox, the vernal equinox. That's the mnemonic. It doesn't always work. Um, it doesn't always work that way. It actually follows some very complicated tables. 
And I said, first of all, I said Sunday. Now, if you're going to define any day, you need to define your prime meridian. Now, clearly, when the Catholic Church instigated its calendar in 1582, it wasn't thinking about Greenwich in London as being the prime meridian, which is what we use nowadays. So do we use the prime meridian, the Greenwich meridian, as being the definition of Sunday, or do we use something else? That's an open question, as it were. The next thing is, I said, full moon, the first full moon after, uh, first Sunday after the first full moon. Now, people think that that means the moon in the sky, but actually it doesn't. What the Catholic Church, it's called the computers, the way that, that, that um, Easter is, is calculated. Um, it doesn't follow the moon in the sky. It follows a set of tables for the moon, which again are only approximate. Um, I mean, for example, in the tables, the, the moon, the, the phase of the moon can either be zero days or 30 days, neither of which make any sense because the length of time between full moons is between 29.2 and 29.8 days. So it can't be zero and it can't be 30. <laughs> Nevertheless, the table, of, you know, the table of the ages of the moon, according to the Catholic Church, and therefore what everybody else in the Western churches has inherited, um, has this table. So it, the, the moon there then is the ecclesiastical moon. It's not the moon in the sky. It's not the astronomical moon. Uh, so going back to the mnemonic, the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. So the next thing is the vernal equinox. Now, that depends on the sun. Now, the vernal equinox to an astronomer is when the sun crosses the equatorial plane. That is the plane of the Earth's equator extrapolated out into the sky. And that occurs at a certain specific time. We can say when it occurs you know, to a fraction of a second. And... Um, but in the Easter computers, uh, the definition of the vernal equinox is March the 21st, full stop, period, I should say. I'm talking to Americans, so I use full stop rather than period, the dot yeah. on the end of a sentence. <laughs> um, uh, so it's March the 21st. Now, um, that is the vernal equinox, which is used in mnemonic. So it's the ecclesiastical equinox. The astronomical equinox doesn't occur then. In fact, the astronomical equinox will not occur on March the 21st again until the year 2103. That's a long way into the future. Uh, this year, it's on March the 20th, if you use the Greenwich Meridian as being the prime meridian. Um, and in fact, over the next almost century, it will vary between March the 19th and March the 20th, depending on where you are in the leap year cycle of four years. And so the ecclesiastical equinox is this religious construct definition. It bears no real relation to the astronomical equinox, which we would, so we would define that astronomically. There has been discussion in recent years amongst the World Council of Churches about changing the way in which Easter is calculated using a strict astronomical reckoning. Mm -hmm. That's fine. So we would use astronomical value for the vernal equinox and astronomical value for the full moon. You've still got the problem of where's the prime meridian? You know, do you choose Jerusalem, um, given that you know Easter is predicated upon um, upon the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? You know, so do you use Jerusalem or do you use the Greenwich Meridian? Where do you use? That's, there's all sorts of arguments involved in doing that. And so that's the Royal Council of Churches has been discussing that for some years, for some decades, actually. Hmm. Uh, one of the problems is that, you know, the definition of Easter which we use is that which the Roman Catholic Church introduced in 1582. And the Roman Catholic Church is not a member of the Royal Council of Churches. So <laughs> you've got one group of churches arguing one thing. And the people who actually define the thing in the first place saying, well, you know, we don't mix with you or whatever. I'm being a bit rude and crude there, maybe, but you get my meaning that um, yeah. you can talk about things all you want. But if, you know, some people just aren't going to play the same game, well, 
uh, what's the point? Um, in any case, is it really that necessary to worry too much about uh, an astronomical definition of Easter? But clearly, when Easter occurs, is a is a complicated thing, but also it has real effects. I mean, it can vary over 35 days. Earliest date is March the 22nd. Latest date is April the 25th, and that can uh, 35 days is five weeks. Clearly, that makes a difference. Um, say in the United States, if Easter is light and you've got a long weekend, if you like, you might want to go camping. Mm-hmm. And now you ain't going to do that on you know, March the 22nd, probably unless you live in Arizona, New Mexico, or Southern California. Mm-hmm. However, if it were towards the end, you know, April the 23rd, 24th, 25th, you might, you know, the weather may be better, and maybe you would go camping then. Um, from the opposite point of view, I'm living now in New Zealand, I used to live in Australia, and it certainly was apparent uh, that the number of people going camping uh, would depend upon where Easter was um, in that 35-day spread. Right. You know, um, because back in March, it's still nice and warm, but hey, April the 25th, we're into our fall, it's starting to get a bit cool. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I like to bring up camping because uh, Easter, of course, is soon after the full moon, and that makes a huge difference if you're camping far away from city lights because a full moon makes a big difference. You know, in the middle of the night, you need to go out and take a pee somewhere. A full moon will <laughs> at least enable you to find the nearest tree. Um, you know, whereas if Easter were at darker moon, around new moon, you know, well, it's hopeless. You know, it really is very, very dark. So um, I'm being a bit irreverent, obviously, but as I say, I have no particular religious beliefs of my own. But, you know, the date of Easter does affect us. It affects us economically in all sorts of different ways. You know, it is a four-day holiday in various parts of the world from Good Friday through to the end of Easter Monday. And uh, that has economic consequences. Mm-hmm. So some people say, hey, why can't we have it on the same date every year? Well, good luck with that one, um, you know. <laughs> So, you know, as I say, you know, we don't think very much about the calendar which we which we uh, live on, mm-hmm. and yet it's every day. It's like a seven day cycle. You know, it's Friday where you're from where you're speaking to me, but it's Saturday here, uh, soon afternoon on a Saturday. So, um, you know, people are taking it easy. People are playing rugby this afternoon. You know, they you know, rugby is New Zealand's national religion, if you like, yeah. at least for the men. Net, netball for the women, as opposed to basketball. And, um, you know, so it's a different sort of day. And the reason it's a different sort of day is that it is a Saturday. And tomorrow is a Sunday, and that's a different sort of day as well. Yeah. And, you know, we live in this seven-day cycle without really thinking about, well, you know, where does it come from? Why, why do we do this? Um, mm-hmm. And there are reasons for that. And uh, there's all sorts of, I think, interesting things about the weekly cycle. Uh, very few people seem to realize that the days of the week are all named for planets. Um, hmm. uh, when I point that out to people, they say, oh, yes, Sunday and Monday could be moon day. We get that. I say, well, that's right. Um, and they say, but the sun and the moon aren't planets, are they? I say, well, actually, in terms of the ancient Greek derivation of the word planets, uh, planetai, which, which actually means wanderer. So these were things which wandered across the sky. So that to the ancients, the sun and the moon were indeed planets. They wandered across the sky. Uh, and there were seven visible planets, the sun and the moon, and then Mercury, Venus, um, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. You know, Neptune and Uranus still long way in the future to be discovered. We need telescopes for those. Mm-hmm. Of course, Pluto. We won't get into arguments about whether Pluto is a planet or not. <laughs> but you know, the seven uh, ancient you know, naked-eye planets, as we call them, those were what the days of the week were named for, and and that was what they were derived from. 
They were derived from um, ancient Babylonian astrology, which assigned importance to uh, the planets. And it was coupled with a, a Jewish tradition in uh, a seven-day cycle, which was reinforced during the exile when the Jews were sent from um, you know, Judea, um, parts of Egypt, Palestine, and so on, off to Babylonia. Um, uh, in the exile, they found that the Babylonians were already using that seven-day cycle. So there was a reinforcement in that, which when they returned to what we now call the Holy Land, uh, the, uh, the Jews brought back with them that seven-day cycle. Then later, when the Romans invaded and took over Egypt and, and that part of the Middle East, um, the Romans at that time used an eight-day cycle. We called it the Nundinai. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were using an eight-day cycle, but they then picked up on this seven-day cycle, which was brought back to Rome. In fact, the, the Julian calendar, which Julius Caesar introduced 46 BC, that was on the basis of advice he got from an, an Egyptian astronomer called Sosigenes. Um, so that was the establishment of that calendar, but the seven-day cycle wasn't adopted for some time. Uh, we know that there were the calendars painted on the wall in Pompeii, which, of course, was covered in volcanic ash and so on in AD 79, uh, which show the two. That is, they show the eight-day cycle and the seven-day cycle, which was called um, the week of the planets, in essence. But it didn't become the legal method for the legal length for a week until Constantine the Great um, made it legal in, if I remember correctly, it was AD 312. Um, and that was when he converted as such to Christianity. And so we've inherited that in a certain way. The order of the days in, in, in the week um, actually again follows an astrological practice, which is to do with horology or horoscopes, if you like, to do with hours. In that uh, in the that ancient astrology, there were 24 hours obviously in a day. Mm-hmm. And so you'd go through each hour was ascribed to a planet. So there were three cycles of seven days and then an extra three. So the first hour of the next day was a different planet, and the ordering of the days of the week, which we use, um, follows that particular cycle. So you know Thursday is obviously Thor's day; it, it's it's Jupiter. Um, Friday um, it happens to be the only day of the week which is named for a female god. Uh, to which extent uh, that was Frigga or Freya. That's where we get um, uh, Friday from. To which extent, I've always thought it kind of peculiar that in Robinson Crusoe, it was a man Friday. It should have been a woman Friday, obviously. Right. Because Friday is the only day of the week with a, with a female goddess. And so the ordering of those, you know, Tuesday is, is two, that's, that's the equivalent of Mars. Wednesday is Woden's Day, that's the equivalent of Mercury. And Saturday is, is the obvious, it's Saturn. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's our seven days of the week. Again, I find it just kind of interesting to know that and, and realize that Actually, we've inherited that through multiple traditions over the past more than two and a half thousand years. Mm-hmm. And so things, some things have changed somewhat, uh, but some things have remained the same. Yeah. It, yeah, it's crazy how it's just this like hodgepodge of, um, you know, historical events and like holiday type things and fitting that into, you know, how the sun, how we move around the sun and in the earth rotates and everything to make a, a calendar that works. And so, and I, I also, yeah, it is super interesting how, um, we have to do the leap year to kind of like get it more to get it as, as close as we can. But when are we going to, cause it, you said it's, it's not perfect what we're doing, what we have now. 
is there going to have to be a, a correction day where we lose an extra day or get an extra day eventually or something like that? No, again, this is a fallacy which people uh, very often talk about. Um, uh, and it, it is a fallacy um, as such, but even some quite prominent astronomers at different times, for example, in the 19th century, uh, John Herschel was a great astronomer in his own right, but his father, William Herschel, discovered the planet Uranus in 1781. But John Herschel, in the middle of the 19th century, wrote about the need for um, you know, a correction every 4,000 years. That's actually based upon a fallacy, uh, which is repeated still in modern astronomy textbooks. Oh, wow. And the fallacy is that it says that the what is called the um, uh, tropical year, it says that's the time between vernal equinoxes. Uh, actually, it isn't. The tropical year, the mean tropical year, or the MIMTI, I like to call it MIMTI, mean tropical year, is actually an average over both the equinoxes and the, and the solstices. And so it's a figurative long-term average. And that is not the target of the Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar is based upon regularizing specifically the date of the vernal equinox. And so it's the time between vernal equinoxes, which should be used. I'm getting to a real technical bit here, and I don't want to go off along that kind of tangent and, and lose people. All I can tell you is that you know, technically, um, no, we don't need a, a, an adjustment of that type. In any case, if you were going to look at an adjustment of that type, surely what you would need to do is make an adjustment which would keep the seasons in check. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah, keep it in check. Okay, well, if you take a look at lots and lots of books about climate and climate change and so on and so forth, it's an assumption generally made there, an unspoken assumption, that the cycle of our climate, the annual cycle, goes according to the equinoxes and the solstices. However, it turns out that if you take a look at the records of temperature since the thermometer was invented and introduced in the late 17th century by Robert Hooke, who was a professor at the University of Oxford. He started keeping temperature records, and since then there have been many, many more, and now, of course, there's thousands of places around the world which keep temperature records. When an analysis is done of the cycle of the temperature, which you can think of as being a climate cycle, mm -hmm. it turns out that the dominant over that length of time, more than 300 years, the dominant cycle has not been this mean tropical year, the time, the average time between solstices and equinoxes, but actually it's the time between what are called perihelion passages of, of the Earth, that is the time when we are closest to the sun. Now that again, if you think about it, that makes sense because even though we don't notice it on an everyday basis, you know, the Earth's orbit is not exactly circular. We are closer to the sun at certain times of year and further away at other times of year. Mm -hmm. It turns out that currently what we call perihelion, which just means closest point, closest passage to the sun, occurs around about January the 4th. And aphelion, which is our furthest point away from the sun, you'll be pleased to hear, occurs around about July the 4th. Um, so another reason for celebrations as such. <laughs> now, it varies a little bit year to year, but it is, it is a, a consistent change. And it happens that that date changes compared to, let's say, the Gregorian calendar by about one day every 57 and a half years. So it's, it's, you know, it's over a year, human lifetime. That time at which we're closest to the sun is shifting by uh, a, a bit more than a day. Hmm. And that is significant when you're analyzing climate records. Yeah. You know, if you're going to. If you're going to analyze climate records, you need to really do need to take that into account. And it looks like over the last 50 or 60 years, that 
cycle has actually been broken, and some people believe that is due to man-made climate change. But it's still an, an open question. There are lots of things about the climate and what we call astronomical forcing events, which is still not understood. So don't let anybody convince you that we, we, we understand everything, because we don't. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some things which um, maybe I would argue haven't been thought about enough yet. Yeah. Um, and that's one of, you know, if you, like I say to people, what what is your target length for the year? If your target length for the year is you have religious concerns, which are all about Easter, or let's say you're from the Judaic uh, tradition, then your concerns are going to be about Passover or Rosh Hashanah, which actually happens just after the uh, autumnal equinox in September. If those are your concerns, then you need to have a target year length in setting your calendar, which depends upon the specific astronomical time between those astronomical events. That's your be best basis for moving forward. However, if you actually want to follow the climate, uh, then actually it's neither of those. You know, it would be according to our best information from you know, temperature records over several hundred years, it actually would be a different length of year. And funnily enough, it's quite significant. I said it's one day every 57 and a half years. Another way of looking at it is this, that if we actually followed a calendar which um, tried to track the, the temperature variation, the climate variations, according to those records over 300 years, then what we'd be needing to do is this. Instead of dropping some leap years, which is what the Gregorian calendar does, it drops, as I said, three leap years in a 400-year cycle, the three days drop. In fact, we would need a leap year every fourth year, and then every century, so every uh, year like 2000, 2100, 2200 and so on, we would actually need an extra day. So you'd need a super leap year. You'd need 367 days. And in fact, it turns out that that would give you a very, very accurate tracking of a year if you defined it according to the real length of the time it takes the Earth to complete an orbit, that is, to come from one perihelion passage to the next. To complete an elliptical orbit around the Sun, we would need an average of 365.2596, it turns out, which is very close to 0.26. If you think about 0.26, well, 0.25 is a quarter, hence a leap year every four years, and the extra bit is uh, from the difference between 0.26 and 0.25 is 0.01. Mm -hmm. And that means an, a super leap year every 100 years. Okay. Now, I'm not suggesting, please don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting we should instigate that as a calendar. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you need to think about what is your real target? What are you trying to regularize? I see. And uh, I say, that's if you want to regularize what has apparently been the climate cycle, maybe that would be it. On the other hand, surely that cycle can't continue forever because it's clear that, for example, I'm here in. The southern hemisphere and it's full starting soon with the March equinox whereas you in the northern hemisphere you've got your spring starting soon so mm -hmm. you know clearly you know there is an effect uh, due to the tilt of the earth's spin axis which is what defines equinoxes and solstices it isn't by any means uh dominated by the changing dis distance between the earth and the sun but that is an important effect and again if you spend some time in the southern hemisphere you'd find that Generally, the climate here is a little bit different. Um, in the Northern Hemisphere, you tend to have uh, shorter winters and longer summers. And the reason for that is that at perihelion, the Earth is traveling a bit quicker. And at aphelion, which, as I say, occurs around about July the 4th, the Earth is traveling a bit slower. And so in the Northern Hemisphere, you will get shorter winters, longer summers. And it's the converse in the Southern Hemisphere. We tend to get shorter summers, but hotter summers because we're closer to the sun. 
and um, and longer winters and and but milder milder winters. Yeah. So on we go. Um, Man, it's crazy. It's there's so much to think about, and yeah, it makes sense where you want to, how you you want to pick like your what your target is and why you're doing this. That how that will affect how you set up your calendar. Um, so I'm curious about how we exactly how we set up. You know, like day, week, month, year. Like the day was set up just because that's the that's generally the amount of time that it takes the Earth to rotate once. Is that correct? <laughs> Nope. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, educate me then. Okay, there's, there's two different types of day. How long it takes the Earth to rotate once is, well, clearly you do that compared to the distant stars, and that we call a sidereal day. And that lasts for 23 hours, 56 minutes, and 4.1 seconds. Okay. okay. And the Earth does rotate at very close to the constant rate. Uh-huh. However, during, uh, during a day, however we define it, the Earth has moved along in its orbit a little bit. And so in, for us to come back, so that for the sun to be in the same position, crossing the meridian, defining noon, mm-hmm. we need to turn a little bit more. Uh, a little bit more is the difference between uh, a solar day and a sidereal day. And that brings us up to the 24 hours. However, the solar day we use is actually a mean solar day. It's an average over the year. And um, in fact, the time between uh, the sun crossing the meridian uh, on one day and then doing it again on the on the next day, that does vary over the year. And so we use a thing which is called the mean sun, which is a figurative thing in the sky. And the mean sun can be up to eight solar diameters away from the actual sun in the sky. And the difference between, if you like, um, what we call local solar time, which is the sun in a position on the Earth's surface as defined by the sun, and the time it may say is the mean solar time, uh, the difference between those is called the equation of time. It's actually a graph. It isn't an equ- well, you can write it as an equation, but we call it equation of time with capital letters. And if you ever look at a um, at a uh, sundial, you a good sundial will um, will be set up for the exact latitude which you're at, and it will have a little graph on it which shows you for this time of year make the following correction. Yeah, and it can be up to. 16 minutes in one direction and 14 minutes in the other direction in terms of pluses and minuses mm-hmm. to make up the fact that, uh, the, the, in essence, the equation of time is due to the fact that, first of all, the Earth has a tilt on its spin axis, and that can make a difference to how long it takes the sun to come back to the meridian. And secondly, the Earth's orbit is not circular, which means that sometimes we're getting a bit closer to the sun and other times we're moving a little bit away. The combination of those two effects produce this thing called the equation of time and therefore the correction we need to make. So in the past, people have used a thing as a world standard called Greenwich Mean Time. And the meaning of mean in that term is according to the mean sun. It's this theoretical construct. As I say, it could be eight solar diameters away from the actual sun in the, in the sky. Um, but it's a theoretical construct, and it's what we use on our watches, you know, and our computer systems and everything else. Mm-hmm. And we no longer use Greenwich Mean Time or GMT because that was according to the sun in the sky. Um, once uh, electronic clocks were were invented, which is way back in the 1920s, so things like quartz clocks, it happens that there was a, a more accurate way of timekeeping than using observations of the sun and so on. And so, as of that time, if you like timekeeping left the astronomical observatory and moved into a physics laboratory 
okay. And, and it's got more and more refined as time goes by. Mm-hmm. But now instead of that term GMT, which really shouldn't be used anymore, we use something called UTC, which is Coordinated Universal Time. And that um, is coordinated such that it's kept um, within 0.9 seconds of what GMT would show. That's why every so often we have a leap second introduced. Um, it's apparent, if you like, from our electronic clocks nowadays, atomic clocks, um, what the time should be. And yet, um, you know, the Earth's spin actually is slowing down a little bit. Why it's slowing down a little bit, uh, we can just discuss it in just a little while. But it is slowing down a, a little bit, and so we need those leap seconds. And those are introduced to always keep... Um, coordinated universal time within 0.9 seconds of, um, if you like, the, the spin phase of the Earth. Uh-huh. Wow. Now, actually, um, just to point out that you know, the ultimate authority for um, timekeeping as such is held by France. It's um, a bureau in, in Paris or near Paris, and the Moudon Observatory. But actually, the, the best atomic clocks in, uh, are in the United States. Um, they're both at the national, what used to be called the National Bureau of Standards. I think it's now called the National Institute of Standards and Technology. NIST is the is the abbreviation. Actually, it's got a big office in Boulder, Colorado, where I lived for some years, and um, but also at the um, in near Washington. I believe the main atomic clocks are in the basement of the U.S. Naval Observatory, just uh, to the north of the Capitol Building in Washington D.C. Oh. So, uh, yeah, timekeeping nowadays is, if you like, ultra-precise and using radio telescopes to track very, very distant quasars, which essentially are standing still, if you like, in the sky. It's possible to follow how the spin of the Earth is very slightly varying in time. It is gradually slowing down, but we also see, if you like, variations across a year. So if you think about it, in the Northern Hemisphere, when spring comes and then summer, it's getting warmer, and so, hey, guess what? The atmosphere is swelling a little bit because it's getting warmer. And that's very similar to, if you think about an ice skater, we always say she, but it could be a male ice skater, either equally well. Mm-hmm. Here's an ice skater doing a pirouette, and she put her arms out, and she slows down in terms of her spin. Then she brings her arms back in again, and she speeds up again. Right. That's just called conservation angular momentum, a basic physical principle, if you like, that the Earth does exactly the same thing. You know, as the atmosphere swells up, um, uh, with you know climate variations, seasonal variations across a year, um, you know there's some mass moving a little bit further away from the spin axis, and the effect of that is to slow down the spin. And then when uh, fall comes and then winter, you know the atmosphere cools down, the swelling goes down a bit, and guess what? You know the um, the Earth speeds up its spin again. Mm-hmm. And so we see that using um, what's called VLBI, very long baseline interferometry. Um, radio telescopes pointing at very distant quasars. It's possible to, to track exactly how the Earth's spin is changing with yes, phenomenal accuracy. Wow. Uh, but on top of that, it's kind of annual variation, if you like, up and down, but absolutely minuscule amounts. There is also a very slow um, change in the in the spin rate of the Earth. And the, the reason for that is, I guess to a physicist, it's simple, um, but maybe it isn't. I'll explain it to you. Um, Clearly, we have tides. You go to the ocean, you see the tide coming and going. Mm-hmm. Um, those don't every 24 hours. They follow the tidal cycle, which is how long it takes the moon to come around, if you like. So it's actually a length of time, which you could call a lunar day, which is about 24 hours and, and 47, 48 minutes. Therefore, the time between high tides is around about 
12 hours and 24 minutes, maybe the two tides a day. Now, as the tides sweep around the Earth, and those are being largely raised by the moon, um, as the tides sweep around the Earth, obviously when the high tide comes up against a continent, that provides a drag force, which is slowing down the Earth's spin very slightly. So it's like a braking force, a drag force, which is slowly uh, dropping the spin rate of the, of the Earth. Um, however, I said uh, just now that yeah, angular momentum is an absolute conserved quantity in physics. Mm-hmm. But there's two different types of angular momentum. There's the spin angular momentum of the Earth. There's also the moon going around us, and that has an orbital angular momentum. And what has to be conserved is the total angular momentum of the system. If the Earth is slowing down in its spin, what happens is uh, it's losing some spin angular momentum. What that means is the moon has to pick that up as a bit of orbital angular momentum. That's just a consequence, if you like, of the physics. And the way in which the moon does that is it moves away from us a little bit. And it's moving away from us at about four centimeters a year. That's about an inch and a half. Uh, We know that on uh, the laser ranging to the uh, reflection cubes, the backscatter cubes, which were left on the surface by the Apollo astronauts. Mm-hmm. And various observers in the US and elsewhere routinely are zapping the moon with lasers, timing how long it takes to come back. And guess what? The moon is indeed moving away from us by about an inch and a half a year, wow. which is more or less consistent with what we would expect based upon you know, the tidal drag. But it isn't quite precisely in agreement. And scientists always like to find little discrepancies. And then they think about what's going on. Well, what seems to be going on, and again, you know, I haven't looked at this for probably 10, 20 years. I'm sure there's been research done since, which uh, maybe has led to revisions of complete understandings. But what seems to be happening is this, is that last since the last ice age, which finished 10, 12,000 years ago, during that ice age, you know, the continents in the northern hemisphere and the south were largely covered with ice and, and kilometers of miles thick ice. Mm-hmm. And that would, have co- that would have compressed the rock underneath. And it's still rebounding. Even though the ice is gone, the rock is still expanding a bit, rebounding from the end stage. And again, we go back to the pirouetting ice skater. You can see what's happening. That that rock is swelling up. That is slowing down the spin of the Earth. So it's not just the tides and the drag due to the moon causing the tides, which is causing the Earth to slow down, but also another effect. And of course, we need to understand all of that to put the whole thing together. So back on leap seconds, well, why do we have leap seconds? It's because the Earth's spin is very, very slowly slowing down. Um, and so we need to make put in a leap second on the average once every 18 months. If we continue with that system, they will become more frequent. And the reason for that is not that the Earth's spin rate is, is slowing down at a faster rate. Even if it continues at the same rate, it will, will still be, you know, um, um, producing a differing frequency of leap seconds. The reason being that our our value for the second, what I might now call the atomic seconds, defined by uh, atomic clocks. That's mm-hmm. based upon astronomical value, which was derived in the late 19th century. And so, you know, our, our duration for a second is now very accurately defined. All sorts of other units are defined in the same way. So, for example, the length of the meter is defined in terms of the fundamental unit called, you know, called the second. And um, it happens that there are no longer 86,400 of those seconds exactly in a mean solar day because the Earth's spin is very, very slowly slowing down. But it's, hey, it's nothing, to, nothing to worry about or worry, you know, or think about, really. It's just we do need to adjust our clocks every so often, and it's a consequence of high technology. Yeah. 
Man, well, I'm glad, you know, someone, people like you are, are thinking about this and figuring this stuff out, Duncan, because this is crazy how it's interesting how everything is so related like that and how it just affects it. And, you know, but I just look at the phone on my, look at my iPhone and it's got the time on there for me and I don't have to worry about this stuff, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, there's, you know, there's other people who, we all have different interests and different areas of expertise and Yes, the whole world is so complicated now that you can only know about a little bit. Yes. Um, so many different things. I mean, I'm sure that you are much more adept, Travis, than I am with social media. It just leaves me, you know, I think, oh, it's like they say, you know, if I get a new DVD player, you need some, you need some teenage children. <laughs> just say, hey, here's the instruction book. Get this working for me. And, and you know, I've long since reached that stage. Um, and unfortunately, my teenage children have grown up and left home, and so... Uh, I borrow some teenagers from other families whenever I buy them. Uh, and it is kind of like that, you know, that uh, us old dogs can learn a few new tricks. But, um, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah we'll, we'll help each other out. I'll help you with the – when you need a DVD player, help give me a call, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, cool, man. This was interesting. One thing I want to ask about real quick is I, I saw this on your um, – website that you have a, a minor planet or an asteroid that's that's formerly named for you by the uh international astronomical union right yeah all the best people do drugs. so cool <laughs> um, look i used to run a uh actually it was the first southern hemisphere search for near-earth asteroids so this is something which you know you'll be aware of is been starting to be taken more seriously. When I started that search program back in 1989, so 30 years ago, everybody thought I was joking. And I said, well, no, actually I'm not. You mm -hmm. know, when you take a look at the statistics and um, you know, you cal calculate, well, how often will we expect to be hit by a, a painfully large asteroid? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's uncomfortable um, because the consequences would be so huge. So, yeah, you know, a half-mile asteroid hits the Earth about once every 300,000 years. So people say, oh, well, you know, it's most likely not going to happen. Yeah, hey, I agree. Most likely it's not going to happen. But the consequences of something like that happening uh, would be so phenomenal that um, it's something we do need to take seriously. And really the U.S. has been, I should say, the only country taking it seriously because other countries have gradually come on board. But mm -hmm. certainly uh, a great fight, as it were, in terms of trying to get people in different places to... Yeah, it's not something to panic about. You know, I give public talks and I say to everybody, hey, you know, when you're walking home, don't cross the road looking in the sky worried about an asteroid. You're much more likely to be hit by an automobile. Right. Okay, but you know, it's something which we we can tackle, we can deal with, and in essence, you know, we can answer the question: Is there one due to hit us soon? You know, we have the technical capability to search them out, define their orbits, their paths around the sun, and be able to extrapolate forward out to about a century. Um, with sufficient accuracy to be able to say, you know, is this asteroid we've discovered uh, going to hit the Earth or not? And up until now, you know, we've certainly not found one which is going to hit the Earth anytime soon. We've got a few which need to be uh, continually tracked for the next few years, and, uh, and that'll enable us to determine their orbits around the sun with more accuracy and be able to say, no, it's, it's going to definitely miss. That's the most likely outcome. Um, but it is something to be taken seriously. Um, so, yes, I mean, as a result of my involvement, and yeah, I've written lots of research papers about asteroids and comets. Um, yeah. I've got an asteroid, a minor planet is what the International Astronomical Union strictly calls them. So 4713 Steel is mine. But on the other hand, I'm the 
formal discoverer of another 12, um, which isn't a big number. You know, we've got, you know, we've got automated systems now which are finding these things thousands every night. Oh, wow. uh, back when I was doing the program, we were scanning big photographs. You know, they were 13, 14 inches on a side on glass plates, very fine emulsions, and we'd scour them with stereo microscopes and things to find these little trails due to asteroids millions and millions of miles away, but you know, we could determine their orbit. So it was still old technology back then, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a dozen which I discovered, which you have the privilege of suggesting a name. You don't have naming rights. You have the privilege of suggesting a name right. for any which you, for which formal discoverer. So, um, you know, I named one for each of my two sons. So 5263 Arius is named for my son Harrison. Mm-hmm. Couldn't name it Harrison because there would be one name for George Harrison from the Beatles. Of course. So Arius, A-R-R-I-U-S, is actually a poem, which I had to translate in Latin at school, about a Roman who dropped his H's. And so he, his real name was Harrius, but he always said it Arius. So it was kind of a funny poem, which I remembered. So his is called Arius. And then I couldn't, my second son is called Elliot. Um, he is asteroid is called 6828 Elb Steel, E-L-B Steel. That's his initials, Elliot Lewis Barnaby Steele. Um, I couldn't call it Elliot. His uh, his Elliot is E double L I O T, but there was already one named Elliot E one L I O T for the poet T S Elliot. So I couldn't call it two L's, too similar a name. Right. So he's got something else. But I've named them for my parents, um, each of my siblings. I've got four siblings. Um, the little town where I was born in England is called Midsummer Norton's. Makes it sound like an idyllic village. I'm afraid it's not at all. <laughs> don't keep it. But um, yes, I named one um, for that little town. That one turns out to be an interesting asteroid, apparently. I didn't realize it at the time, but a lot of astronomers have made observations of it since for various reasons. Um, but, you know, there are you know hundreds of thousands of these things in the main belt. And over the last... 25 years, we've been discovering a lot more in a, in a different belt, which is out beyond Neptune. There are many, many, many minor planets out there, you know, millions and millions of them. Wow. And again, you know, part of my research is I'm interested in those perspective of, well, you know, we're seeing objects out there which are 50 or 100 kilometers across, pretty big. You know, we're not talking about little lumps of rock. Mm-hmm. We're talking about big, really, you know, we still call them minor planets, but actually they're comets. They're big lumps of ice with some rock mixed in. Mm-hmm. in essence. And um, I follow, you know, I'm interested in their orbital evolution. So over timescales of millions to billions of years, like the age of the solar system, how often do one of those get come too close, let's say, to Neptune and get flicked into an orbit which might divert it into the inner solar system? Because if that happened, we're in big trouble. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a hundred kilometer object, you think about a hundred kilometer wide object, that can clearly be broken up into a million one kilometer objects. Then all of a sudden, you know, got a real problem because that's a lot more than all the Earth-crossing asteroids we see now. And events like that must have occurred during the history of the Earth. And we know that there have been mass extinction events which are linked in various ways to um, asteroid and comet impacts. We can't be sure which. I mean, people know about the the dinosaur extinction 65 million years ago. Mm -hmm. They know about the fact that a crater has been, a, a very heavily eroded crater has been identified on the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. There's actually another two or three craters elsewhere which seem to be the same sort of age. So maybe it just wasn't a single impact. Maybe it was a big object which broke apart and some of the fragments hit the Earth. And all three or four of the craters which I've mentioned there 
um, are on land. Well, 70% of the Earth is covered with ocean, so maybe there's been impacts in the ocean, which, of course, we wouldn't see so easily the craters from. Right. So that's, you know, that gives us pause, you know, as it were. Yeah. And people say, oh, well, five million years ago, but hey, take a look at the map of the US and take a look at Chesapeake Bay. Uh, that actually is an asteroid impact crater at Chesapeake Bay. Oh. That occurred um, around about, I forget exactly how long ago, 31 million years, is that correct? I don't know. Um, uh, but that was an asteroid impact. In fact, there's a type of glass. It's, it's natural glass. It's, they're called tectites, little black lumps of glass. It's clearly melted rock, which is re-solidified when it's flying through the atmosphere because they're these ballistic shapes. And there's various what are called strewn fields of these around the, around the world. Um, you know, there's a strewn field in Africa. There's one um, in Southeast Asia. Um, but there's, there's one in um, Eastern Europe. So lots of these things are found at a certain level in, in the strata and so of the same age. So it seems like an asteroid has hit, gone kablam, it excavated a big crater, melted lots of rock, and some of that has flown through the atmosphere as, as melted rock, and it's re-solidified as it flies as, um, as little glassy lumps, which can be up to the size of your fist, but mostly the you know, size of your little fingernail. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, some of those are teardrop shaped. Some of them are little dumbbells, but they're clearly, you know, aerodynamic as it were. Some are actually shaped more like buttons, um, you know, which shows, you know, they've been traveling real fast through the air as they've solidified. But again, there's a strewn field in, in the eastern US. And if you know where to look, you can find these things. And that's from that impact from Chesapeake Bay. Again, you know, very few people living in Washington or studying at Annapolis, you know, know this. Yeah. Um, but you know, guess what, guys? <laughs> um, uh, you know, there was an asteroid in back there a long time ago, and that, in essence, is um, is you know, a large part of why Chesapeake Bay is there. Man. So, yeah, worked in that kind of area for many years. Um, uh, yeah, I find it interesting. It's, you know, different people find different things interesting. And, um, yeah, it's interesting stuff in that, it's, yeah. you know, we want to know how life has evolved on the Earth, what the influences have been. Um, you know, we're going to understand what's going to happen in the future. We do need to understand the past. Mm-hmm. For sure. So if a, you know, if an asteroid or something was going to, was coming to, to hit us, would, and we, you know, were able to predict it and see it coming, what, I mean, I guess it would probably depend on what it is exactly and everything, but would there generally be something we could do? Or is, is that, is that how, no, can we not? Well, um, it, obviously, it all depends on how much warning you've got. Okay. Yeah, the movies always have short-term warning, but the reality yeah. is, no, um, you know, you can expect, um, uh, hopefully, if we do the search programs properly, we can expect a lot of warning. I'll give you an example. Um, there was an asteroid discovered in 1950, it happens, in a program which was sponsored by the National Geographic Society. It was discovered by Mike Palomar. Uh-huh. And it's, it's now called 1950 DA still. And the reason is that um, it's got a permanent number, so like 4713 Steel is my um, asteroid, if you like. I don't own it. Nobody owns the moon or the asteroids, but uh, that's the one that's got my name. Mm-hmm. Uh, 4713 is this permanent number in a, in a, in a list. It starts with number one series, C-E-R-E-S, which was discovered from Palermo in Sicily on the first day of the 19th century, January the 1st, 1801. And um, so we're up to over 100,000 a lot more than 100 days. Uh, 1950 DA has got a permanent number, but it hasn't been given a name yet. And the reason is that um, 
people who discovered it in 1950 have long since gone, I'm afraid. And so there has to be a certain length of time, 10 years, I think, after numbering, in which it's kind of um, being held in abeyance and sooner or later it will get a name. Maybe it has already, because I haven't checked mm-hmm. in the last few whether it's got a name yet. But anyway, that object, um, 1950 DA is the way I remember it, um, uh, that has a slim chance of hitting the Earth on a known date at a known time, but in the year 2800. It's nearly eight centuries away, so do we worry about it? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're tracking it. The current estimation of the chance of it hitting the Earth, and it's quite a big asteroid, by the way, it's a few kilometers in size. Um, chance of it hitting currently is estimated to be about one in 300, according to our best knowledge. Um, but our best knowledge is not limited by lack of definition of the present orbit, because we've been tracking it now for 69 years. We know its orbit pretty well. Mm-hmm. The real problem is this. We don't know enough about its surface properties. What, how does that affect it? Well, the problem is that you know, asteroids are absor- absorbing sunlight, and they get warm, and they re-radiate that energy as thermal infrared. Before. It's a different wavelength, longer wavelength. But both the absorbing of the sunlight and then the re-emission actually calls a type of, if you like, jetting force upon it. It's, it's due to, the, if you like, the pressure of light. Mm-hmm. Um, that leads to an uncertainty in exactly what the path taken by that asteroid will be over the next eight centuries. And that may seem like you know, bizarre. What on earth are you guys talking about? I can assure you that people studying this thing, we've got radar returns from it and so on. We've got the orbit well determined. We cannot say for certain what will happen in 800 years' time, yeah. and it's because of lack of knowledge of its surface properties. Um, now, obviously, 800 years, we'll let, we'll let future generations worry about that one. Um, uh, as I said earlier on, in fact, we are able to um, predict the paths of asteroids up to about a century into the future, and, and that's obviously the only period which is, is of real concern to us. Mm-hmm. We, our great-great-grandchildren, look out for themselves, but Right. If we were to discover an object, let's say, I always use 23 years as an example. Let's say we were to discover an object which we think has got a real good chance of hitting the Earth in 23 years' time. There isn't one that we know of, but let's take that as being a being a, a, an example. That is the sort of warning which we can we can certainly generate. You know, mm-hmm. We have the technology, scientific understanding to do that. It's just a matter of doing it. Right. And most search programs are running in the U.S., have been for a long time. My search program in Australia was closed down in 1996 by the Australian government before it was all a lot of fun. Okay, but the Southern Hemisphere is very poorly covered. Mm. We need more search Southern Hemisphere. We need more tracking in the Southern Hemisphere. But let's say we did find an object and we said, hey, look, this looks like it's got a, let's say, a 50-50 chance of hitting in 23 years' time. What could we do? Now, the reason I use 23 years is this, that if we change its speed in any direction by one centimeter per second, it will miss the Earth. The oh. reason for that, if I multiply the number of seconds in 23 years, which is a big number, by one centimeter per second, then I get a number of centimeters, I will be diverting it, and the answer comes out to be the radius of the Earth plus 400 kilometers. So therefore, we can get it to miss the Earth. Right. You know, that's got a handwriting argument, if you like. It's more detailed in technicalities and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are all sorts of other things we might do. But if we had 23 years warning, we only actually need to change its speed by, like I say, one centimeter per second. Remember that these things are flying through space at tens of kilometers per second. So it may not feel like it, but right now we're sitting on the third rock from the sun 
we're traveling at about 30 kilometers per second. Okay, so you know, multiply that by 3,600, you get the number of kilometers moving in an hour. And uh, you know, a kilometer is more than half a mile. So you can see we're traveling at many, many thousands of miles an hour. Yeah. And that's see, but but you know, we only need to change the speed of this thing by a centimeter per second or call it half an inch a second. It's a very small change. Could we do that? Yeah, we have, you know, we've got various ideas as to how we could go about doing that. Mm-hmm. Um and but we do we would need a good sensible amount of warning yeah. know, in order to make you know the movie thing about having all these nuclear weapons or the space shuttle about to fly off there. Forget about it, guys. It's great movies. Don't get me wrong. You know, very yeah. exciting, but not not based on real science. Right. Um, so you know, it, it is one of those things. In fact, as we say, it's the only type of natural disaster we actually have the technology to stop. We can't stop a volcano. Mm-hmm. We can't stop it. We can't stop tsunamis. We can't stop great floods and everything else. We can't stop hurricanes and other great storms. But we could stop an asteroid hitting the Earth. Wow. Um, and I think it would be useful, um, like I say, to take it probably more seriously than we do. Like you said that, people say, you know, quite rightly, you know, aren't there more important things to spend money on? Well, well yeah. Um, but, you know, you need to strike a balance mm-hmm. and, um, in all these things. Apart from anything else, you know, actually saying, right, we're going to search out these things and find out whether one's going to hit us. That's a very benign program to begin with. I'm not manda- you know, I'm not suggesting we start putting nuclear weapons in space to shoot down asteroids, any of that sort of thing. I'm saying let's just search them out. Yeah. And let's answer the you know the question is, is there one due to hit us in the next few decades or the next century? The most likely answer to that question is no. Mm-hmm. We will certainly find things which are going to hit us within the next century, but they're going to be small. So when people say, oh, when was the last time? Well, there was a an object about 20 yards across hit uh, hit Russia um, in 2013, February the 15th. Um, that's a place called Chelyabinsk. Um, you know, that was a big explosion. That was a half a megaton explosion. Wow. Okay, it was about it was about 40 times the Hiroshima bomb. Oh that my god. Yep. Now, again, you know, it was in the papers for a day or two, and then it went. Thankfully, it didn't kill anybody. Uh, more by luck in many ways than judgment. There were 1,200 people taken to hospital. You can see videos of the thing happening. You can see, you know, glass windows being smashed out by the by the shockwave, mm-hmm. and people being cut by the glass. There's one particularly good. I shouldn't say good, but a very illustrative um, video. It was a, a security camera inside a, a garage, and it shows a group of guys wa- walking towards a big fold-up door which I guess they were going to open to bring cars into service and that sort of thing, just as the shockwave hit. And this door, which was probably five metres high and 10 metres wide, just got taken totally off its hinges and slammed into these guys. Oh, again, thankfully, none of them killed. But again, you know, better education, if you like, would have been good. The point being this, that um, the flash, which was far brighter than the sun, many people had real, still had real problems with their eyesight because... Mm-hmm. They looked towards it instead of looking away. It's far brighter than the sun. It was in the very uh, six or seven in the morning when people were just out and about. Amazing thing is, it was, of course, in Russia. And um, you probably hear about the number of uh, corrupt policemen there. And so lots of Russians actually have uh, dash cams. Uh, that is, they have dashboard cameras so they can film what they're actually doing uh-huh. so that the crime can't can find them, you know, for doing something they haven't actually done. Because right. of that, we got lots of 
footage, we still call it footage, but, you know, um, uh, video of the of the object entering the atmosphere, wow. which was great. The thing is that there was this huge flash up at an altitude of, you know, the terminal height was about 20 kilometers above the ground, but the blast wave then comes down at the speed of sound. So it actually got to Chelniabinsk, the main population center, about two and a half minutes later. Wow. So the flash is gone. There's still lots of smoke and lights and so on in the sky, but people are going about their everyday thing and looking up. And two and a half minutes later, a lot of them got knocked off their feet. Wow. And, um, uh, you know, all praise. There was a particular teacher I remember, um, must have had a very early morning class, I guess, people taking to school because their parents were off to, to, uh, to work or whatever. And she told all the kids to get underneath their desks. Nice. All praise to her because the glass came just shooting in mm-hmm. um, when the blast wave hit. So, you know, in the future, in the same way as back in 2004, when we had the Boxing Day tsunami in Southeastern Asia, and then tsunami since 2011 at Fukushima in Japan, you know, people still didn't know, hey, when the water goes out at the beach, run for it. <laughs> you know, don't <laughs> yeah. go down and take a look. Run for it. Get to high ground. Yep. You know, people didn't know that. But now, you know, we see everything live on TV around the world, and hopefully the message has got through. If you see the water going out in a very suspicious way at the beach, get to high ground. There's a tsunami coming. Yes. And the same is true for an asteroid. You know, something like happened at Chelyabinsk in 2013. Well, we expect one of those every decade or two somewhere around the world. Mm-hmm. Most of the time over, you know, the ocean or over, um, you know, an unpopulated region. But um, we've been lucky so far. Yeah. Uh, but if when the next one happens, I hope that people will know when we see this huge flash in the sky, Take cover because there is a blast wave coming from that direction. Right. And you've got to, you know, get in the basement or get behind a wall. Do not be near glass and so on. And there's nothing much you can do to save any property because it's going to be a major blast. It is just like a, you know, a big nuclear explosion at altitude and um, no radioactivity, obviously, associated with it. But it's it's a lot of energy being deposited in one place at one time. And that has consequences. And so clearly we would like to know when these things are going to occur. Having said all of that, we can't find, you know, the 20-yard size objects or the 50-yard size objects. 100 yards? Yeah, maybe. You know, the current NASA Space Guard goal, as it's called, says try and find all the ones down to 140 meters in size, so about 150, 160 yards in size, mm-hmm. 500, I guess. Um, and that's a good goal, but it's, that's difficult. That needs a lot of um, diligent scouring of the sky, but we can do it. And uh, even if we only had minutes of warning, you know, you can still save a lot of lives. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, you're much more likely to be hit by a car. So, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. Um, you know, don't get me wrong that, but, you know, a big one hitting the earth, that would be a, a major calamity. Yeah. We, you know, the chance of that occurring is very, very slim. Mm-hmm. But, in all these things, we need to be kind of sensible and say, you know, where do we put our resources? Um, you know, we can argue about it in a different way, which is you know, people talk still about going to the moon to mine the moon, and um, that's not going to happen. Um, yeah, I know there's lots of water on the moon, um, you know, there's ice and so on, but to land on the surface of the moon, to get there, land on the surface and take off, if you're leaving from Earth orbit, it needs a, a, what's called a delta V, which is the way in which we measure the difficulty, the amount of energy you need, if you like, to go do something in space. You need a lot of delta V to get off the surface of the Earth to get into orbit. But thereafter, 
you can be in orbit around the sun to land on the surface of the moon and then take off again. Needs a delta v change in velocity, mm-hmm. delta v at six kilometers per second. So that's a that's a that's a useful um, kind of figure to remember. But there are Earth approaching asteroids which come by repetitively, which have speeds relative to the Earth of only two to three kilometers per second, and that makes them easier to get to. Mm-hmm. You've got to stop them. Distance just because the moon is close is neither here nor there. In space, it's how easy is it to get there in terms of the economics, which all depend upon energy and fuel you need and so on. So, in fact, there are Earth approaching asteroids, Earth crossing asteroids, which we would be able to fly to and mine, which are easier to get to than the surface of the moon. And that's why there have been various companies which have been set up looking at mining asteroids. Um, And people think about uh, the precious metals which can be in them. Fine, I get that. But the reality is that asteroids are going to be really useful to us for other stuff, just water. Mm-hmm. If you can get water from ice within asteroids, we now know there's lots of ice there, um, you can split that apart into hydrogen and oxygen. You know, and for us to be living like on the space station, you know, we need oxygen and we need water to wash and drink and everything else. And yeah. as we move more into space, and yeah, I know it sounds like science fiction, but it's reality. Yeah. In the next few days, we'll be moving more and more into space. So if we're going to do anything out there, we need to be able to support ourselves from the stuff which is out there because it costs so much to get it off the surface of the Earth. Yet there can be better ways of getting that stuff. Equally well, if we're going to manufacture in space, we don't want to be blasting stuff off the surface of the Earth. In fact, we'd like to be bringing things back in the opposite direction. And therefore, you know, asteroids, hey, some of them are chock-a-block full of metals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sorry, chuck a block is an English term, I guess. Um, there's lots of it. Um, uh-huh. There's lots of metals there. There's different types of asteroids. We know a lot about their composition from looking at, in essence, the colors of light which they reflect. We can tell from then comparing that against different meteorite types. We can say, hey, look, that one there, you know, that one is made of, you know, such and such a type of rock, similar to this sort of meteorite. That one there, that's made of, that's made of solid metal. A lot of meteorites are solid metal, nickel and iron. Clearly, if we're going to manufacture things in space, including habitats and so on, mm-hmm. we need to act raw materials out there. And that's why there are various companies um, uh, been set up in, in the US which are looking at doing this. Around the world, there's something like 15 or 20 companies been set up. The government of Luxembourg, it turns out, has decided that Luxembourg is going to be the center in the future for space mining. Uh-huh. Okay, it already has the highest per capita income in the world, Luxembourg. Um, oh, it's wow. in that. Very nice place, a small population uh, in you know comfortable place in Europe, with very high capital income, and so they've got money to invest in space, and that's what they're looking to do. Science fiction, it sounds like I know, but it's 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 the reality of the future. So as we go searching for asteroids which may be dangerous to us, we're also finding ones which are going to be useful to us. Yeah. Uh, another reason for doing it. I'm not saying, you know, this should be at the top of all governmental priorities around the world. I'm saying, you know, you know there's good reasons for us to want to know what's in our own backyard, uh, both in terms of the danger they pose to us, but also their utility to us. Right. In, and um, that's part of, you know, uh, I just think, you know, the way in which the world is moving, there's lots of terrible things happening, but we're doing pretty good. You know, I'm old enough to remember... Um, well, when I was born, we didn't have a TV, and then we had black and white TV with two channels. Mm-hmm. But I'm old enough to remember um, kids 
clumping along the road wearing calipers because they'd had polio. In fact, I had an uncle who had polio and he could never run after that. He could walk, but one leg was not as good as the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't, we just don't have that anymore. Yeah. We no longer have smallpox. When I was a kid, there were people with smallpox scars. And of course, lots of people died from smallpox. We've currently got this measles epidemic spreading in different places around the world. It's due to, I don't know what to say, stupidity and ignorance on various people's parts. Um, not getting their kids inoculated is terrible. I had measles when I was a kid because it was before when we had the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella. Yeah. Um, it was, it was horrible. I remember it. I was about four at the time. It was terrible. Um, I wouldn't wish that on any kids. And, um, you know, the reality is some people do die of measles. Mm-hmm. Get your kids populated. Um, you know, so, you know, things are getting better. Um, that doesn't mean to say there aren't terrible things happening. We've already spoken about awful things happening uh, here in New Zealand just yesterday. Yeah. Um, we'll have ongoing repercussions. But, you know, I'm really optimistic about the future cool yeah we we have challenges climate change and blah 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 but they are not things which are insurmountable yeah and our improved scientific knowledge our improved ways of doing all sorts of things um uh, hopefully are leading us in the right direction obviously there are um bad things which come with new technologies yeah you know Overall, anybody who says, oh, I'd like to live back 50 years ago, I think living in a dream world, really. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that's my dog barking there. But yes, yeah, I agree. Things are progressing for the better. And yeah, I think we just have a, humans in general just have a tendency to kind of uh, illuminate the past and only see the good stuff. But yeah, things are going good. So cool. Well, I like it. It's it's fun talking to you. And uh I love hearing about this stuff. It's it's really exciting to hear and 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 learn about all this stuff. And you know, good to know about the if an asteroid ever hits or anything like that too. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on, Duncan. It was fun. Um, it's absolutely my pleasure. Anytime. Um, yeah, I I, lo- I love doing this sort of thing. Um, I mean, actually, believe it or not, I'm kind of an introvert. So I go into a bar or a concert meeting and I hard hardly talk to anybody because that's me. Whereas I'm quite happy talking. <laughs> Um, you know, to a camera or whatever. Um, right. That gives me the chance to, you know, say a few things and hopefully uh, some people enjoy it and learn a few things. And I love talking to other people when I can and hearing things, watching documentaries on TV because I love learning new things. And uh, like I say to people, they say, oh, don't we know everything? I say, well, you walk into a library, take a look at all those books and say to yourself, I'm never going to be able to read all these. But there's so many great things, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody says, oh, TV well, well, no, there's lots of rubbish on TV. There's some great documentaries. There's some great concerts. There's some great music, you know, all sorts of other things. Yep. Be selective, I guess. We've only got a limited amount of time, all of us. Just be selective about how you, how you spend that time. Yeah, very true. I totally agree with that. Cool. So um, we have your website at duncansteel.com. People can check you out there. Um, I'll throw links to your books to on Amazon. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to have people go to or check out? No, I mean, please, uh, I've got my, uh, an email address on my website. If people want to get in contact, please do. Um, you know, I try to reply to every email I get, unless people are rude or whatever, but, you know, honest inquiry or people saying hello, that's that's always good. I try to reply to everything. Cool. And uh, great, great to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Appreciate it and uh, have a good one, all right? Okay. Thanks, Travis. Yep. 
<laughs> oh boy, what an episode. Thanks for sticking around and listening to it. This is Travis again, uh, here on my own. But as a thank you for sticking around, I wanted to give you a free sticker, a free Curiosityness sticker, 100% free, don't have to pay for shipping, you don't have to enter your credit card info, it's really free. Uh, to get one, go to curiositynesscom slash free sticker, and it's yours. I'll send it to you right away, and, and you can slap that baby wherever you want to represent Curiositiness. So uh, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Just wanted to give you guys a little gift. Um, so just go ahead and claim that at curiositynesscom slash free sticker. And uh, visit our website too, curiositynesscom I have an Instagram, podcast. I'm on Instagram, too, as Trav DeRose, me, Travis, the host. You can follow me if you want. Uh, we're on Twitter, Curiosityness TV is our uh, handle there. We're on Facebook as Curiosityness. All the links to this stuff are in the show notes. You can just click on it and follow us if you want to, because I post some cool little clips and, and extra stuff that you don't get from the uh, podcast onto social media, so you can join in on that and comment and, and talk about me and the show or whatever you want to do. Uh, we're on YouTube, too, as Curiositiness, and I have an email address, Travis at Curiositiness.com. Send me an email, send me your thoughts on the show, suggestions for new guests, tips on things to make the show better and, and help me with my interviewing and, and get better and everything like that. So uh, constructive feedback is always nice. So send me an email and uh, also reviews super help. Uh, really appreciate reviews on the show in uh, Stitcher or iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever. Um, just drop a review. That's extremely helpful. You don't even have to make it five stars. You can, you can lower it. Uh, I would prefer a higher one, but whatever, whatever you want to do. I won't coax you into something, uh, but any sort of review helps. I really honestly do appreciate it. So um, yeah, thank you again, guys, for sticking around and listening to this end blabber with me, but uh, have a good rest of the day. Bye-bye. <laughs>